I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. If you have ever entered a room at a Catholic retreat house and wondered to yourself, what's a Buddha statue doing in here? And then, instead of Eucharistic adoration, maybe you've been encouraged to sit for an hour emptying your mind of all thought through Zen meditation. Our guest tonight is here to respond to concerns regarding a turn towards Buddhism in the 21st century among Catholics and Catholic institutions. He does that by shining a clarifying light on the similarities and the differences between Buddhist doctrine and Catholic theology. He is a professor of Chinese history at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington, and he is the author of the book Catholicism and Buddhism, The Contrasting Lives and Teachings of Jesus and Buddha. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Anthony E. Clarke. Dr. Clark, welcome. Thank you. Thank it's you. great to have you back. Oh, it's good to be back. It's been oh, about... Oh, it's been six years, something like that. What was the last time? It was about six to seven years ago, I think. Okay. I got on the flight coming here, and it was icy and 30 degrees. And here in Alabama, it's beautiful, approaching 70. Nice, nice. Well, it's good to have you here. Thank you. And Frank, just to let our audience know... Um, I was the one who helped to kind of instigate this book. Now, this is an interesting story because I, I co-wrote an author with Carl Olson, um, yes. who's Catholic uh, World Report, and this, this article got an enormous amount of readership. And you said to me once, now, y'all should write a book about this. And that was... That, that by this being Buddhism and Catholicism. Right, about Buddhism and Catholicism. And this really was the kernel. That, that ended up forming into the book that you see here. Mm -hmm. that, and, um, that and an interesting experience I had at a Catholic retreat center. I mean, I was thinking about, should I actually write this book that Father Mitch recommended? And then mm -hmm. I went to a Catholic retreat center, and it, uh, that, was, that was when well, I made the moment. What happened? So I, I, I was there. Uh, I went into the bookstore, and what, what really struck me about the, the bookstore at this Catholic retreat center is that there were more books by the Dalai Lama, by Thaknit Han, and by Buddhists. I didn't see a single Bible in the bookstore. It was just mostly uh, Buddhist books. And then I went to the chapel, and the chapel had a statue of Jesus in the lotus position, and no crucifix, just Jesus in the lotus position. And then instead of the stations of the cross, there were Zen sayings. And the question emerged, how do I how do I process this? You know what? Is this is this the is this the church that was uh, that Christ founded? Is this is this the church that that we received at Pentecost? And so the question started to emerge: How do I compare these two uh, faith traditions? Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I, I don't think it's the same. They, they don't they <laughs> right. don't have lotus flowers. Right. Very different. In the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. Right. Kind of a desert. So uh, that, yeah, you know, I've actually come across the same phenomena in uh, some retreat houses. Um, if you go to the Maronite retreat house 
and shrine of Our Lady of Lebanon, you don't see any of that. It's all about Jesus right. and Our Lady. But this, this is something important. And one of the things you write about is that it's a trend that in the culture at large, a number of people want to have a Buddhist identity or religious experience because it doesn't require doctrine, a church, sacraments, or anything as such. Right. And then you also have, in addition to that cultural desire, you mentioned what you just said and talk about it in your book, that there are many Catholic institutions and a number of important Catholic thinkers who are more fascinated by Buddhism than they seem to be fascinated by the gospel of Christ. Right. Would that be fair? Well, yeah. I, one, one interesting thing is uh, I would say about a week ago, my wife and I went to a home decorating store and there, there is an entire aisle of statues of the Buddha, the Buddha's head, the Buddha in meditation. Nowhere will you see a statue of Our Lady, certainly not a crucifix. I've had people in my home who, who've actually been a bit astonished that there's a sacred heart image in the house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but if that were a Buddha, they wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have had that reaction. Yeah. So what is it then about Buddhism that attracts people or makes yeah. it seem like the quote unquote safe religion? And what I hear quite often is that Buddhism is pluralistic that Buddhism is, it represents uh, one path to the same end and it doesn't have the same requirements that say Christianity has. Interestingly, and, and I think this is something that so few, especially Americans know, is that Buddhism, if it's traditional Buddhism, most Buddhists have a tremendous amount of rules and practices. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, it, well, when, when the Jesuits first went to Japan and China, uh, because they wore robes and they had beads, everyone thought they were Buddhists. Mm -hmm. And it took the Jesuits a little while to figure out, well, actually these Buddhists have a different religious view. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were actually quick to discern that Buddhism and Christianity are entirely different faiths, yes. entirely different faiths. And, and they, they wrote about, I mean, when they first arrived, they didn't speak Chinese or Japanese. And uh, they eventually learned to read and write and speak extremely well. Someone like Fa uh, Father Matteo Ricci, Matteo Ricci right. wrote classics of Chinese writing. Mm -hmm. um, and then they could see, wait a minute, this is very, very different. Now, there is another thing, too, that's going on. Um, one of the things you quote was something from my own hometown, the first World Parliament of Religions oh, in 1893. I actually attended, I wasn't born yet, <laughs> uh, but I actually attended the second World Parliament of Religions that was also held in Chicago. And something that was said by Swami Vivekananda at the first one in 1893 was repeated over and over again in, 18, in 1993. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He said, as the different streams all mingle their water in the sea, so, O Lord, the different paths which men take, crooked or straight, 
all lead to thee. This is, this I think is the idea that a lot of people have. Even if a path is crooked, it still leads to God. If it's straight, it still leads to God. All yeah. these different, uh, a lot of people will say it's, uh, the different religions are all spokes coming mm -hmm. from the same center, mm -hmm. God. So they all lead to the same place. It really doesn't matter right. which one of these you choose. Right. I'm sure you mentioned some right. of this. So this, this, um, <coughs> this uh, sort of gathering of world religions was in 1893 was one of the first times that people encountered Buddhism and yes. I think in a large on a, in a large scale and one of the one of the thinkers there was a Buddhist by the name of DT Suzuki who becomes mm -hmm. sort of the preeminent speaker for Buddhism in the United States and inspires so many people like Thomas Keating Thomas the two father Thomases Thomas Merton but when I think about this this what I would call that is a kind of seed of pluralism. But what, what I think of the two kind of traps that people fall into, uh, you have one that is a kind of religious pluralism, this idea that, that all religions go to the same place. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is a sense that as a Christian, all religions have nothing to say, right? So there's, in one sense, there's all are inclusive, and the other is that uh, as a Christian, I can't find any merit in Buddhism. What's your position in that, uh, you know, in regarding those two positions? Well, the first position, this pluralist position, clearly the Buddha himself didn't buy that because there's that famous story of an elephant in the, in the Buddhist Uplift Sutra where there's an elephant and, and five blind men are summoned. One touches the trunk, uh, one touches the ear and says it's a winnowing basket. One touches uh, the, um, the, e the ear says a winnowing basket. One touches the tail and says it's a rope. And, and the blind men all think that, you know, they're different things. Mm -hmm. When this story comes to America, it, it becomes the kind of uh, calling card idea or parable for pluralism. We all can have our own truth. It's a kind of uh, excuse for relativism. But the Buddhist Sutra is quite the opposite. What the Buddhist Sutra, what the Buddha is saying in that parable is that everyone's blind. The only thing that's true is Buddhism. And if Buddhism can actually hold that there's one truth and that's Buddhism, then clearly you can't pull from Buddhism an excuse for pluralism. And so my I think that's an important thing. Buddhism does not teach that all the religions lead to the same place that, that that's that's a very important element right, right. but the council and Nostra Aetate make it very clear the church by is council teaching you mean second vatican council okay so the second vatican council and 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 documents Pope paul the sixth made it very clear that we can see in other religions rays of truth that doesn't mean that they have all of the truth only our faith is is, is, has uh, that claim. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, what the 2000 document by Cardinal Ratzinger called Dominus Jesus has this little section that talks about how there is a kind of mutual enrichment in religious dialogue. And that's very often quoted by Catholics to justify uh, things like Buddhist meditation at retreat houses. But if you keep reading, it actually continues to argue that it's 
it's this kind of relativism that poses a threat to the church's evangelical mission. Um, and it actually, Dominus Jesus mentions pluralism as one of those threats. Well, when we take a look at Buddhism, one of the very core differences, and I remember when I was a young professor at Loyola University in Chicago back in about mid-80s, uh, 85, 86, right in there, um, a Buddhist came to us and my compatriots in the faculty were saying, well, he's a Buddhist theologian. And well, and and you you laugh at that because right, so right. why why do you laugh at that? Because uh, at best Buddhism is agnostic. Yeah, and uh, and it's very clear that theism, theos being God, is rejected as an idea to be entertained in Buddhism. There is no theology, theology being the study of God. There's no God in Buddhism, and that's considered one of the weaknesses of Christianity from the point of view of Buddhists. Exactly. See, that's, that, that was the point. And, and when the Buddhist and I dialogued, we both agreed, you know, we, we talked about that and he lit up and said, oh, you get it. <laughs> right. You know, that in Buddhism, they do not assert that there is a God, hmm. nor do they deny that there is a God. Right. They are completely agnostic, right. that is, Agnostic means unknowing. Right. They just don't know. And they and Buddha didn't care to try and figure it out. Wasn't his concern. No. Um, I think that's pivotal. The notion of whether or not there is a God is the pivotal thing that separates Buddhism and Christianity. What the Buddha's aim was and, and I like to think of Buddhism has an aim, that's nirvana, that's sort of awakening or enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, Christianity has a purpose. And if you think about the subtle differences between a purpose and an aim, that kind of dis that distinguishes the two. But uh, there, there can be no God in Buddhism because uh, ultimately the purpose, well, first off, there's no creator in Buddhism. Right. There's an infinite regression of time and there's an infinite progression of time. Right. So there's no moment of what Thomas Aquinas called creatio, creation from nothing. Um, and, and when you think about it, a Buddhist would not be able to assert the Big Bang theory. No. That there was at uh, you know, 14 and a half billion years ago, uh, nothing and then another point there was everything that exploded they right they, right. they right. can't uh, assert uh, any kind of beginning mm -hmm. it's what is is eternal right what makes the buddha the buddha i mean the word buddha means awakening what makes the buddha the buddha is his as buddhism believes his insight that all things are suffering and that karma there's really no such thing as good karma in buddhism that's a very Hindu idea, good karma, bad karma, moving into Brahman. From the Buddhist point of view, um, rebirth is an optimistic way to talk about re-death. There's always suffering in this world because of desires. Mm -hmm. That was Buddha's great insight. So from that point of view, the goal is to eliminate all desire, mm -hmm. to eliminate especially my desire to believe that I am a permanent being. And this is vastly different 
from this, the Christian idea of imago dei. We have a creator. There is a God who made us. If that's the case, we are made in God's image. And I love when I think about this, you know, sort of thinking about Buddhism, I think about the first chapter of Genesis. How many times does God say his creation is good? Constantly, this is good, this is good. In fact, in case you missed it, at the very end of the first chapter of Genesis, God says it's very good, just to make it more emphatic. Now, if that's the case, in Romans 8, we are good. Um, if that's the case, then the Buddha's premise that everything about us is a kind of suffering that needs to be extinguished makes little sense. So the God question changes everything. And there's a quote, there's a Vatican document on interreligious dialogue right. from the Vatican Commission. It was written by Michael Fitzgerald, uh, who's in the Interreligious Dialogue Commission. And it says, quote, since Buddha deliberately avoided talking about the existence or non-existence of God, it is obvious that Buddhists will have difficulty when faced with the Christian belief in Jesus as the Son of God, true God and true man. Buddhists naturally tend to interpret Jesus according to their own system of thought. They may be attracted by his teachings and by his example. They may be willing to recognize Jesus as a bodhisattva, that is, one who renounces himself out of compassion for others. Yet, there will remain a fundamental difference, for they accept Jesus as a wise teacher, but not as a divine person. That, I, that summarizes quite well. I mean, I would su suspect that Mr. Fitzgerald has a, you know, a lot of study, like yourself, on, you know, reading the Buddhist scriptures. Right. It's, it's not a personal feeling or hunch. This is what is written. I mean, um, Christ identifies himself in sacred scripture as God. Yeah. And uh, the Buddha does not. Right. Never does the Buddha identify himself as even a deity. In fact, at the, what's called the Parinirvana Sutra, the Sutra at his final extinction, he makes it very clear that after this death, I no longer exist. Um, now, the question of existence or non-existence, Buddha was asked in one sutra, what do you think of that? And he remains silent. So his silence sort of affirms that he neither affirms nor doesn't affirm whether or not we exist. But, but it's very clear that Jesus is God and is divine, and he claims so himself. I also think of it this way, if, if, and it's, it's curious that um, what I'll hear sometimes is the Buddhists think Jesus is good, but Christians don't like the Buddha, which is actually not true. That's just not true. Um, but what is interesting about the Buddhist view of Jesus is that often they'll complement his moral teachings but certainly not, not his, uh, his sort of what we might call existential or ontological thinking. Buddhists think that Jesus would have been a bad Buddhist because a truly good Buddhist is detached from a desire for certain outcomes. What did Jesus do? He wept. He, had, he, had, he was angry. He overthrew tables in the temple. Jesus was anything but detached. 
He was a lover of humanity. Um, Jesus exemplifies a pat, well, in his passion even, um, but Jesus exemplifies love in a way that um, Buddhism, whether or not we can describe Buddhist charity as love in the same way, I would argue not. Mm-hmm. But I would just say Jesus is not the Buddhist that some people assume he was. No, no. And in fact, in one of the books that you cite um, by a, a Catholic, I believe a Catholic woman, uh, that she wrote a book on a dialogue between Jesus and Buddha. Right. And at the end, Jesus becomes a Buddhist. Right. At the end, Jesus, Jesus essentially concedes to the Buddhist position. Because in, she brings out the, the, your point. These two worldviews are not compatible. They're not. They're not the same. And she was apparently more attracted by a Buddhist perspective and made Jesus, and her, her view of Jesus uh, was he had to become a Buddhist. Right. Not that Buddha could become a Christian. Right, right. That would, would that be fair? That's fair. And I think that's a powerful point. Um, there is an assumption, at least in the West, that uh, it's easier to go from Christian to Buddhist than Buddhist to Christian, which is another, I think, untruth. I, I teach at a, a Christian university, and there are many former Buddhists who converted to Christianity <laughs> because of, uh, well, I, I just had a chat with one former Buddhist who said, for some reason, Buddhism had a, a kind of glass ceiling. There's a certain point where you can't go past. And it was, it was Christ's mercy that really struck this person. I mean, uh, what, was, what, would, what was it that he said? Um, if the leader of Christians is Peter and Peter made so many mistakes, why did Jesus love him so much? Right. Um, mm-hmm. But um, this this question of this this sort of question of, of whether or not Jesus was a good Buddhist or not, this is something that we see quite quite often, and it, it typically is a kind of concession to Buddhism. And there's there's another element too that uh, a lot of people miss because they're um, I, I don't know if it's attracted or they're satisfied with a very popular uh, bookstore notion of Buddhism rather than actually becoming a Buddhist Buddhist. in the context of authentic Buddhism, where you, uh, if you're a Buddhist, there are certain expectations that you are not just doing your own thing and finding your own enlightenment as any way you feel like it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a, a bit about the, the, what's the expectations. required to become a Buddhist. So when the Dalai Lama was once asked, uh, what do you think about this mixture that you see in the West of Buddhism and Christianity? And the Dalai Lama was somewhat flabbergasted by that question. And his answer was, Putting Christianity and Buddhism together is like putting a yak's head on a sheep's body. They're they're completely different animals. And um, one of the things that he also pointed out is to be a Buddhist, you, I mean, in in Christianity, we say that to be a Christian, you're you're baptized. Um, To be a Buddhist, you actually take what's called the vow of the three jewels or the three refuges. You literally say, I take refuge in the Buddha, 
I take refuge in the Dharma and I take refuge in the Sangha, the Buddhist community. So and what's the Dharma? So the Dharma is, so the Dharma, is, it's often, it's often, I think, misunderstood. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. It's basically his law, his teaching. Mm -hmm. So when the Buddha died, they often say that his, his Buddha body died, <laughs> but that when he died, he left his Buddha Dharma. So the Dharma body, body and the, the Buddha body, the Dharma body, uh, remain. That's his teachings. Okay. So you take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha. And those teachings you study, uh, you get to know very well. And not only that, but you take refuge in the Buddhist community. And, uh, and in taking refuge in the Dharma, if it's truly Buddhist, you don't take refuge in any other Dharma. So it's just the Buddhist Dharma. See, that, and that's, that's key. Yeah, it's, it's very important to see that they, uh, within Buddhism, <clears throat> it is necessary to reject other kinds of teaching. Mm -hmm. It's the teaching of Buddha that is right. necessary. So there, there's, you know, it, it'd be, uh, I think, a misnomer in a way, but we would see that as a certain type of orthodoxy. Right. That this is the right way, mm -hmm. and you also have to belong to a community mm -hmm. the way we have to belong to a church. It's right. not free-floating, going from one bookstore to another mm -hmm. to sit and meditate or something. It's, you know, membership in this Buddhist community right. that is very essential. It is essential. In fact, um, one of the things I think that's it's significant is that the, the Dalai Lama and others, Buddhists especially, will say that to say that Christianity and Buddhism are the same thing is like saying that a map to New York and a map to LA go to the same place. The practice is very different. The, the end result is very different for yes. a Buddhist and yes. for a Christian. So from the Buddhist point of view, to be part of another religion, will get, is, it gets in the way of the goal, mm -hmm. which is nirvana. And nirvana means extinction, extinction of what I think of as a permanent self. See, that's another element, too. I, I think uh, really makes a big difference. Nirvana means that you, as a person, cease to exist. exist. You become extinct. You're, you're not there. Right. And in Christianity, we have a completely different goal, right. which is interpersonal union between the human persons and the three persons right. of the Blessed Trinity. Right. And it's a relationship that is not an extinction, but it goes on for all eternity. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's filled with the truth and beauty and goodness and, and great joy and peace. This is the goal of Christianity. Right. And in Buddhism, if you had that goal, you would be actually a fairly bad Buddhist. You would be a fairly bad Buddhist. Yeah. Um, I like to think of Buddhism in a, in a kind of a simple way, and that is if, if you're a Buddhist, you'll believe in reincarnation. So you might have billions, eons. I mean, an eon being the, 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 the life of, a, of a, a solar system. So you might have eons and eons of, of incarnations, but, but at the end, your soul goes away. It's, you, a, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that it goes away. 
But from the Christian point of view, we have one life and an eternal soul. Yeah. It's the opposite. It's completely the opposite uh, reality. And, and you know, the, our point of view takes a great deal of responsibility for this life. Right. There's one thing, though, that I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, I was speaking to one of our crew members here. He's, you know, working in the control room, Zach. And he said, well, if desire is the uh, cause of all suffering, and you're supposed to avoid suffering right. by getting rid of all desire, correct? Right. Then... Are you allowed to desire nirvana? Right. Um, it would almost seem to be an inherent... A contradiction. Contradiction. Yeah. Um, well, Buddhism is, is as diverse as Christianity. So, yes, yes. So you have Mahayana Buddhists, you have Theravada Buddhists, you have Pure Land Buddhists, you have Zen, you have all these different sort of sects of Buddhism. Yes. Um, just so in Christianity, obviously, we, we, we debate things like justification and grace. Um, we debate a lot the, the, what, is, what constitutes the church. Um, in, in the Buddhist sense, um, this question of desire is equally debated, but fundamentally, at its most generous Buddhism will say that the desire for nirvana, for extension or extinction, for that desire is the one sort of good desire. But yeah. essentially, all desire is bad. Even if you desire something pleasurable, uh, we have this moment of pleasure, but then the pleasure goes away. So all desire feeds a kind of cycle of pleasure and unhappiness. And the Buddha makes this very clear, total detachment. Mm -hmm. is the only way to reach nirvana. But it would still seem, I think young Zach had a good point, it still remains inherently self-contradictory to say the one good desire is nirvana, extinction, but otherwise all desire is the cause of suffering. Right. And how then... You know, do you know that you are desiring nirvana in a good way and that you do attain it? And see, this, you know, that would be one of those things that, um, you know, these kind of uh, issues that are not just a little conundrum. In Zen, for instance, they talk about these koans. Right. You know, these, and this would be something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it seems like a problem. But we have another problem. We have okay. to take a break. All right. Um, we're going to come back in a couple of minutes. You might have some questions uh, for Dr. Clark about Buddhism and maybe some of the things you've seen in your parishes, retreat house, things like that. Please call in. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with those questions and comments. Welcome back. 
We are discussing a new book called Catholicism and Buddhism, the contrasting lives and teachings of Jesus and Buddha by Anthony E. Clark, Ph.D. This is item number 18185, 18185 at our religious catalog. You can go there by going to EWTNRC.com. And if you are interested in this topic, uh, it is an excellent book to introduce you to that dialogue and the difficulties uh, within it between Catholics and Buddhists. So I highly recommend this. Are you ready for some questions? I'm ready. Let's start off with a uh, caller. Steve, you're calling from Oregon. Yes, what can uh, we I do for you? I got two questions. What are the steps in the, to enlightenment? And once you achieve enlightenment, can, can enlightenment decrease or does it remain the same? This is a good question from someone from my home state. Um, good hearing from uh, an Oregon voice. And uh, so what are the steps toward enlightenment? That's very different dependent upon what form of Buddhism you ascribe to. So if you're a Theravada Buddhist, um, they call themselves the elders. They have very strict rules about how one gets to enlightenment. And those rules include very strict things like the Eightfold Pass, what kind of employment you have, how, how you meditate, um, the practice of mindfulness, very strict rules. According to another school called Mahayana, which means the greater vehicle, it's in a way easier to get to enlightenment. Yeah, it means the greater vehicle because more people, more people will be can, able to can get follow. there. And it's more about meditation in the Mahayana tradition. So both meditate, but in the Mahayana tradition, meditation tends to be a little more common. So what one would do is one would first become formally Buddhist take the vow of the three refuges or the three jewels. And then one would begin a course of study, a course of meditation, and hopefully one would come to a state of losing desire and then reaching what's called moksha, a liberation from my attachments. And uh, enlightenment, so it's, the, the final question is, can you keep it? Um, well, according to Buddhism, once you're enlightened, enlightened and I think a better translation is awakened. I mean, okay. my students constantly say, you know, what is nirvana? And it's not the, what, 90s grunge band from Seattle. Nirvana <laughs> means to extinguish a flame. So once you get to what is known as nirvana, you are not joining a great universe or you're not going to a heaven. What enlightenment means is that you no longer exist. Um, and then how that... <laughs> How that translates is very different. So once you're there, you're free from reincarnation. There is no going back into a reincarnated state. So enlightenment is permanent once one gets there. Yeah, but, and, and, but also, again, we, we have to remember that means that you cease to exist. Right. So there would, if you cease to exist, then there would be no coming back. Right. I mean, the, in, there, there's nothing to come back. Right. Nothing can come back right. if you are nothingness. Right. And that's, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. And again, that's very, very different from our Christian understandings where it's union with Christ. Right. Um, or rejection that doesn't mean extinction, mm -hmm. but eternal suffering in right. hell. 
Right. So that's a very, mm -hmm. very different point of view. And I think that's also one of the attractions of Buddhism. There's no real sense of damnation in hell. No. No. I, you, I, you might come back and mm -hmm. carnate uh, as through karma as, at a worse state. There's right. a levels of being. Right. Reincarnation is more like an elevator in Buddhism. Uh, some, some Americans will say that uh, reincarnation is a, is a series of perfections that, you know, it just gets better and better until finally I live this blissful existence in enlightenment. And that's not what reincarnation is. No, you no. can go down in the elevator or up in the elevator. Yeah, if you are, um, you know, in Hinduism, it would be different again. Totally different. Because they're attaining Brahma right. is the goal. And that's why becoming uh, uh, Brahma bull mm -hmm. and being of there, that is, you know, tops in this life. Mm -hmm. But that would not be the case. Not in Buddhism. And in Buddhism, um, do they see that the going down in, in being uh, would mean that you could become a plant or something? Usually not plants. It's usually animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but there are there are these six realms. So you can be a god, a titan, sort of like a warrior spirit. Mm -hmm. You could be a ghost. Uh, you could be born as a spirit with, a, you know, if you were a glutton in life, maybe you would be born as a spirit with a small mouth and a big stomach and wanting to eat all of the time. There are, in, in certain forms of Buddhism, there are kinds of hells. Nothing is permanent. You know, you pay off that karmic debt and then you move into the next incarnation. Yeah. So you go up and down. Uh, variously and and the levels of being vary right in different parts of Buddhism right. I know in Hinduism uh, if you are a bad man you can go down the level to become a woman and if you're That's a right. bad woman you can go down to become an right. animal uh, so they, they would see that as part, but I don't think that's the case in well, Buddhism. Classically so much. in Buddhism, to be reincarnated as a woman is less than a man. I mean, the okay. Buddha himself didn't want to have an order of nuns. Uh, so in Buddhism, being a male is considered a higher incarnation. Yeah. But the one big distinction that's that's key is in in Hinduism, uh, there are these samsara, Brahman, Atman, and Karma. Atman means self. We have something. So when you die, if you attain a kind of perfection in Hinduism, your Atman joins the Brahman and you become part of this great whole. Yeah. The Buddha said, Anatman, there is no self. So he re rejected the Hindu way of thinking about a final sort of fulfillment. He said there is no permanent real self. And that's the two questions in Buddhism are, is do I attain enlightenment and, and, and lose uh, my identity, my selfness, or am I already there, but I'm in an illusion thinking I'm not? That's a more complicated question, but certainly the, the, the end result are very different in the two religions. And this also points out the difference between the Christian notion of creation and the Buddhist notion of eternal being, because at creation, God said, let us create man in our image and likeness, right. male and female let mm -hmm. us create. And that female is not lower right. than the male. Precisely. It's, it's the, these, these complementary right. persons mm -hmm. 
who have e an eternal destiny mm -hmm. on their own. They don't interchange back and forth, but they both have an equal dignity before God who created them as male and as female. Mm -hmm. And this is, you stay female for eternity or male for, for eternity. eternity. Right, right. Yeah. We have a question from our studio audience that might be related. Young lady, where are you from? Atlanta. Atlanta, wonderful. Welcome here to Birmingham. What's your question? How did Buddhists, how did Buddhists think the world was made? Hmm. Excellent, excellent question. This is the, this is one of the most common questions I receive from college students. So this, it's a very good sign that you're already asking that question. From the Buddhist point of view, I like to think of um, the world or the cosmos from a Buddhist point of view as a spider web. Mm -hmm. But it's a spider web that had no weaver. It's the web that has no weaver. Mm -hmm. From the Buddhist point of view, everything has always existed and everything always will exist in some manifestations. So uh, there, is no, there is no creation. The world came from nowhere. It just always was always is, which is very different than Thomas Aquinas, creatio ex nihilo, or ex nihilo nihil feet. Nothing comes from nothing. You know, right. in the Christian point of view, we absolutely believe that there's a creator, and this creator created this thing that we all exist within. Interestingly, I, I find one of the, the sort of complications that, I, that arises in, in Catholic Buddhist dialogue is that Buddhists will, you know, they'll very much affirm that there is a system. Karma is a system. Um, reincarnation is a system. Samsara is the technical word for reincarnation. Uh, enlightenment, awakening is part of the system. But, but if there's no creator, who designed this system? There's a design, but who designed it? And this is a kind of impasse that Christians and Buddhists will have. So yeah. who made this system that you Buddhists take for granted? It's interesting too that the, the belief in the eternity of the universe was true of Aristotle. Right. It's true of Mormonism. They also don't see that the physical world had a beginning. Um, God does. God gets born from other gods, but the physical universe does not. And Einstein didn't, he didn't like it. He eventually was convinced of the Big Bang Theory mm -hmm. by the discoverer of that theory, a Catholic priest, mm -hmm. but he thought at first the same ideas that the, the, mm -hmm. uh, as in Mormonism and right. Aristotle that it's uh, physical world is mm -hmm. eternal. Let's go over to Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, what can we do for you? Uh, yes, good evening, uh, Father Mitch and uh, Dr. Anthony Clark. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Uh, my question to Dr. Clark is, do you think the famous Trappist monk Thomas Merton and his relationship with Zen uh, Master Suzuki was the principal reason for Buddhism's growth in the Catholic Christian West? And on top of that, is the crux of this influence seen to be the denial of the cross of Christ? Because Suzuki writes, whenever I see the crucified figure of Christ, I can't help thinking of the gap that lies between Christianity and Buddhism. In the East, there is no ego to be crucified. And he goes on to say that to the Oriental mind, 
the sign of the cross, Christ crucified, is unbearable. I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Uh, thank you. Mike, very excellent question. This is a good question, especially since that very quote is in my book. Um, and that's one of the particular quotes that is very seldom included in discussions of D.T. Suzuki. The question about Thomas Merton and, and whether or not I, I see his sort of dialogue with Suzuki as being part of the growing popularity, that's absolutely the case. I mean, when Thomas Merton published Seven Story Mountain, there's no doubt that his readership grew exponentially. And um, rightly so. I, I'm a huge lover of Seven, uh, Seven Story Mountain by Thomas it's a Merton. Fine book. Fine book. But later he starts to... Um, to go in different directions. And in his Asian journals, he speaks of dreaming, of being a Buddhist monk himself. Uh, he meets the Dalai Lama. Thomas Merton's, I, I would call it a kind of intellectual flirtation with Buddhism, and in fact, promotion of Buddhism. Um, he started to write books, uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, and he started, he wrote a book on the, the Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi, which is, which is very kind of affiliated uh, Eastern uh, belief that was adopted by Buddhists. I think Thomas Merton certainly played an enormous role in creating uh, a, a kind of popularity of Buddhism. That mm -hmm. and and people like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and the and the and the Dharma. Alan Watts. Alan Watts. I mean, uh, ab absolutely. This this group of the, the sort of the beat poets, Alan Watts, who. You know, became an Anglican priest and then became, you know, was a Buddhist Anglican priest and then a kind of pluralist, um, very more of a seeker than any, anyone with a specific uh, faith system. Um, and, and also, interestingly enough, someone who helped introduce the drug culture in the 60s. He was very much part of, you know, uh, interested in LSD and and such things, as yes. a number of these uh, were, not not Merton, but uh, a number of those folks well, were very much part of the drug culture that developed as a way to attain what they considered enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So the, the, um, the LSD culture of the 1960s was popularly enmeshed with, with Buddhism. Uh, Kerouac and his friends thought that drugs really did help one to attain that consciousness that mm -hmm. Buddhism promoted. And they actually asked D.T. Suzuki uh, if he would try LSD, and he did. Uh -huh. And he said, this is nothing like Buddhism. Exactly. <laughs> he said it's completely exactly. different than Buddhism, and he regretted having done it. Yes. So that was one of those things that actually inspired Suzuki to see that the chasm between American Buddhism and actual Buddhism were very, very large. Yeah, because there's no way that, right. you know, the desire to take a drug would be <laughs> right. a good desire. Right, right. Yeah, that yeah. it, it was seen as destructive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it had very negative effects on Alan Watts and others. Right. right. Yeah. We have another question from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? Roswell, Georgia. Okay, good to have you here. And what's your question? Um, is the Dalai Lama a Buddhist? Because so many people... Um, in the States want to have his peace and go and be with the Dalai Lama and just, you know, get this Zen approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think is causing right. that? That attraction, yeah. So the Dalai Lama is, is very much a Buddhist. And uh, in fact, when some people ask the question, does Buddhism have a leader? 
they're, you know, especially Catholics, they think, well, we have a pope, uh, we have a leader of the church. Um, does Buddhism have a leader? And some assume that the Dalai Lama is really the leader of Buddhism. But, but what the Dalai Lama is, is he is, um, he is the leader of one group of Tibetan Buddhism called the Yellow Hat Sect. Tibetan Buddhism has a red hat sect, has, has more than one sect of Buddhists. So the Dalai Lama then is considered to be a reincarnated bodhisattva, a, a special high being in the Buddhist uh, uh, belief system. Mm -hmm. And the Dalai Lama then, as the reincarnation of this, this bodhisattva, uh, Guanyin or Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of mercy, as that reincarnated being, he's the leader of the Yellow Hat sect. And so he is probably, well, no, he is absolutely the most prominent of Tibetan Buddhists and the most public because in 1959, you, the communist government uh, destroyed thousands of monasteries and uh, just a lot of Tibetans died, monks died when they, when they occupied Tibet and he went into exile. So he got a tremendous amount of, of media exposure. And once that happened, uh, the, the Dalai Lama became, became quite popular. And, and then his, his message for peace and compassion has been appealing to an awful lot of people, especially sort of right after the, the Vietnam War. Yes, yes. Yep, so uh, and it wouldn't be exactly that kind of leader, say, in the Japanese Zen Buddhism. Um, no, I mean, in, in Zen, they have a lineage. So they believe very much in a, in a lineage in their own uh, Buddhist practice, but not, not in the same way that we would have a leader. There is no leader of Buddhism. Yeah. There might be patriarchs, there might be high lamas, but there's no, no single leader. Okay. We have another caller. Hello, Maria, calling from California. Yes. yes. Uh, your I have question? an experience. I had an experience of Zen meditation in the 1980s in the Third Order Carmelite group. It was part of an enculturation movement popular at that time. It was labeled Christian Zen. Is there such a thing as Christian Zen? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good question. Thank you for that question. Because there actually are some books. Right. There was a book um, by... Um, Dom Graham, Aylred Graham, called Zen Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And one of his suggestions is that Zen is a good supplement for Catholicism. And that, like Merton sort of argued that we had lost mystic, pra mystical practices, so we needed to turn to the East to recover our own practices. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the problem with that is, let me go back to what Buddhists themselves say. You can't have a map that takes you to New York and a map that takes you to L.A. and say they go to the same place. The, the practices of especially Zen are pointing in entirely different directions. And, and from Christianity. From Christianity. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're practicing Zen meditation, you're literally trying to empty your mind. I know um, Father Thomas Keating came up with this thing called a centering prayer where you choose a sacred word and you, and you focus on that. This is a good example of how they don't work. Um, a sacred word as something that you focus on from the Eastern point of view is intended for whatever you focus on to lose its meaning. So if you come up with a word, say cup, and you say cup over and over again, it's just sort of like um, if you rub part of your skin long enough, you, you just really don't pay attention to it any longer. Mm -hmm. the, the Buddhist ideal 
is if you focus on this meditative practice, it loses its significance. The word mm -hmm. cup is meaningless after a while. Mm -hmm. So if I focus on the word Jesus over and over again, and, and I'm an Eastern Rite uh, Catholic, you know, we say the Jesus prayer, but we're not, we're not saying the, the, the Jesus prayer over and over again so that Jesus loses meaning. We're saying the Jesus prayer over and over again so that Jesus is infused within us and we focus more on that divine relationship. So there is no such thing as Zen Catholicism or Zen Christianity. They're two different things and the practices are very different. I want to confirm that from my own experience when I was finishing up my philosophy studies and a taken courses in Eastern religions and Buddhism, Hinduism and such. And I had Catholics that promoted us you, trying to seek enlightenment and using you know, Zen sitting and all this other stuff. And I, and I read Dom Graham Elred and a number of other uh, Catholic and mm -hmm. yoga, Catholicism and Zen, all this. And I finally came to a point uh, in October, I remember, well, October of 72, <laughs> that um, I realized I was either going to follow Jesus Christ or seek this state of my own enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And once I could see that it was a choice between an interior state of enlightenment or Jesus, mm -hmm. finally I could say, oh, I don't want me, I want him. Right. And, you know, that was a major part of conversion. And if you ever read my book, I can't find any more, but uh, uh, Catholics in the New Age, that's what that was about. I want to encourage people to check out anthonyeclark.squarespace.com. anthonyeclark.squarespace.com to learn more about uh, his work. And his book is Catholicism, Buddhism, the Contrasting Lives and Teachings of Jesus and Buddha by our guest, Anthony E. Clark. Uh, it's a, an item number 18185 at EWTNRC.com. Thank you so much for being with us. And may the Lord bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one Amen. and true God. We bring you this network only because it's actually brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and cable bill. This was the way our Lord Jesus inspired Mother Angelica to support this network and keep it going. So we appreciate it, and all of your support helps us to do our evangelizing. God bless you all, and thank you.